hey, it's a great day to be alive. I rolled over out of bed today. I checked my pulse. It was there. I figured it must be a great day to be alive because God had allowed me, in spite of all of the reasons He should not allow me, but He had allowed me to be a part of His creation again today. You are also blessed today that God has allowed you to be a part of His creation. So this morning, I want to ask you just, I know I hate to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy this morning. How are y'all doing? Great. Okay. It's a great day to be alive. Good. I'm glad y'all are doing great this morning. Welcome back, Elevation Church. Welcome back. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. This is Studio B. This is our home where we gather. Uh, we've been gathering here now for four weeks. This is our fourth week, right? This is our fourth week to gather here. It's amazing. It seems like we've been here forever in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways it's like brand new, fresh, and we're still learning a whole lot about how to make the most of this facility and this room and all the stuff that we have. But I'm welcoming you back as the church, not to the church, because this is not the church. This is Studio B. This is a building. It's a great building. It's a room. It's a great room. You guys are the church. And so I welcome you, the church, back. And later when we leave, I'm going to send you, the church, out to go be the church in our community, in Highland Village, in Flower Mound, in Louisville, in Double Oak, in Corinth, and all of these cities and towns around here. We are here this morning to be sharpened, to be prepared, to be taught, to be trained, to go be the church out there in that community. A couple of weeks ago, we started a series called Got Dirt. I love that series, Got Dirt. It was a really cool series. It came to me one day after I had been working in the dirt. Literally, I saw myself in a mirror and I was filthy McNasty. I mean, disgusting, dirty. And as I looked at myself dirty in that mirror, I thought, man, this is what I must look like standing before a holy God covered in all my dirty, filthy sin. And in that series, we unpacked some of the parables of Jesus and we looked at what Jesus had to say about living in a dirty world and living these dirty lives and how to be clean because of Christ. And we found some really interesting things in that Got Dirt series as we unpacked some of those. One of the things we discovered is that we all have sin. We all have spiritual dirt. We found that we need to be cleansed of our sin if we want to live eternally with God in heaven. We found out that God loves us so much He sent Jesus to be the sin sacrifice to clean us up from all of that spiritual dirt, that sin that we carry around. And we found that Jesus said, we got to go get dirty in ministry. It's not good enough to just be clean. we got to take our clean selves out and get other people's dirt on us. Because as Jesus wrapped up two of those parables that we talked about, He wrapped them up with these words. He said, go and do Likewise, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He got their dirt all over him. And then he told them, what you've seen me do, go and do likewise. Jesus told a parable about a man, dirty, muddy, and bloody, laying in a ditch, dying. And he talked about the man who came and helped him, who saved him, and picked him up and carried him and invested money and time and energy in helping him get well. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Last week, we shifted gears. We transitioned out of Got Dirt, this Go and Do Likewise series, into the book of James, this series according to Jim, which is just a real simple, straightforward, open up your Bible, chapter 1. Let's go verse by verse through the book of James and see what James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, had to say 
to the Christian church. Because James, Jesus' half-brother, wrote this book that bears his name not to a world of unbelievers, but this book was written specifically for the already convinced, for the church, for men and women like me and you. In fact, I believe James wrote it not realizing it would be an eternally forever book, but he wrote it to that church. But I think he wrote it for all people who follow Christ to understand not how to become a Christ follower. He didn't teach the gospel in his book. He didn't teach people about their dirt or about Jesus coming to make them clean. James said if you have gone down that path, if you have stepped out in faith and you believe and you follow Jesus, this is how you then live in light of the cross of Christ. So as we opened this book up last week, we found out in James chapter 1 that we all face temptation. We're all going to have temptation in our lives. If I mean, you know, temptation comes and goes, but we all get tempted. You can tell where some of my temptation comes from. I, I, I would tend to say I like to overeat. I indulge my palate probably a little more often and a little more... Um, extravagantly than I should. But we all have temptation in our lives. That's an easy one to point at. We have other temptations, darker temptations. And James wrote that God is not the tempter. God does not tempt, nor can God be tempted. Our temptations come from our own evil desires in our own hearts. It's all part of that sin situation that we all are in. We have temptation that comes from within. And then James continues. He says, when we are tempted... We've got to do something with that temptation. We can make one of two choices with the temptation when it comes into our lives. Number one, we can go with it. We can go with that temptation. And when we go with the temptation, that gives birth to sin. When you take the temptation in your mind, when it's still there in your mind, you haven't sinned yet. But when you go with that temptation, then you have entered into sin. And then James says that sin, when it reaches maturity, gives birth to death. And that's a spiritual death. It's the death that we've talked about many times. Not a physical death of your body, though sin can also lead to that. But a spiritual death. A death of your eternal soul. That death is this. It is eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from God. Now you have another opportunity when temptation comes. You can turn away from, you can reject that temptation. You can resist that temptation. And when you do that, you have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you for your Christ follower. When you do that, you do not enter into that path of temptation leading to sin, sin leading to death, and you have the opportunity to live then in the light of Christ even for just the next few moments or next few days or next few months or until that next temptation hits and you get to repeat the process all over again. Temptation leads to sin, sin leads to death. The other thing that we learned in James chapter 1 is that we have to listen to the Word of God. We have to listen to what God is saying to us. But we can't just stop, James says, with listening. We can't just be hearers of the Word. We have to be doers of what God says. If we just listen, if we just hear, we will fall short of what God wants us to be because what He wants us to be comes out in what we do. And so we've got to be hearers of the Word, and then we've got to go and be doers of the Word. Those are some golden lessons that we learned last week in James chapter 1. This week we're going to open up our Bibles to James chapter 2. And if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles up. James chapter 2, we're going to dive right in. This is a deeper places kind of a message today. We're going to get from the generalities of what it means to follow Christ and, and how to live in light of the cross. 
that, that James covered in chapter 1, and we're going to get into the specifics today. James gets very specific in the second chapter of this book. So let's read verses 1 through 7 together. James 2, verses 1 to 7. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. I love how James just beats around the bush and takes it easy and like uses a real long intro to get to his point, right? No, he's right after us. We cannot show favoritism. Suppose, he says, that a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and you say, hey, here's a good seat for you. Come in here, sit on the front row. I want to be sure the pastor sees you. Let me introduce you to Pastor Todd. Let me introduce you to Jim. Let me introduce you to the guys in the back. Hey, we've got special coffee for you. If we treat people like that and then say to the poor man, oh, hey, how you doing? Um, back row back there is fine for you. You can just sit back there. You know, We take that poor man and we, we treat him with not the same respect, with not the same love. Then in verse 4 it says, we have discriminated amongst ourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that He promised to those who love Him? Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into the courts? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? When we show favoritism as followers of Jesus, when the church elevates rich, famous, important people in the eyes of the world, when we elevate them in the church because they're rich or famous or important, or influential in the eyes of the world, we place ourselves in a judgment seat. It's not our seat to sit in, but we put ourselves there and we elevate them based on worldly standards. And what we do is then we relegate the Bible and God's standards to a lower position. We say that the world and its views are more important than the Bible and God's directions. We cannot do that as the church. We cannot put ourselves into that position. I don't want to sit in that judgment seat. That's not a good seat for us to be in. When I look at Jesus' life, when I think about the parables, when I think about the teachings, when I think about how He walked around and taught and who He hung out with, what I think about is this. Jesus surrounded Himself with normal, average, everyday, blue-collar, hard-working, probably pretty poor people. When Jesus called His disciples, He didn't go to the temple courts and select the, the highly educated teachers of the law. He didn't go and select the priests from the temple. He didn't go to the government and, and select the, the senators or, or the, the, the people from the, the Jewish government and council. Jesus went to the seashore and He found some rough dudes. Some guys that they, you know, if they, when they made the TV show about them, they had to bleep out some of the words probably. You know what I'm saying? Y'all ever watch Deadliest Catch? I'm talking fishermen, right? Hardcore, dirty, nitty-gritty, busted knuckles kind of guys. He, he called tax collectors. He hung out with sinners. He loved on lepers. He healed sick people. 
Jesus didn't run around with the rich, influential movers and shakers of His day and time. Jesus ran around with guys like me and you. Because the last time I checked, none of us were all that influential or powerful or any of that. I don't know. If you're rich and influential and powerful, good for you. Don't tell me because I don't want to treat you different. All right? So just keep that little secret to yourself. We'll treat you like you're an everyday Joe, like the rest of us. Okay. So Jesus, who we claim when we say we are Christians, little Christs, lived this way. And James is telling us we need to live the way Jesus lived, whose name we claim. And I think about James writing this, and, and it occurs to me, why would James write about favoritism within the church if he did not see favoritism within the church? He had to address it 2,000 years ago. And I believe that favoritism is still alive and well in our church because we live in our culture and we get, here's that word I coined a few weeks back, we get enculturated. We get sucked into the culture and we live like the culture tells us. And I just want to say, as the church, we need to protect ourselves from that influence and live the way Jesus lives. Surround ourselves with regular, everyday, ordinary people. We can reach out to the rich, but we can't show favoritism to them when we do. Jesus made himself less and others more. And then he said, go do likewise. James is telling us to go live this do likewise life. Follow Jesus' example. Don't sit in judgment. Don't show preference or favoritism. Let's look at verses 8 to 13. James 2, verses 8 to 13. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, which says, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, that's a statement of conviction, isn't it? Those verses, those five verses, I get some, some conviction when I read that, any Christian who's practicing favoritism is guilty of breaking not just one element of the law, but the whole law. We're not living as Christ has called us to live if we show this kind of favoritism. It's interesting, I think. He says mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I thought about that. What does that mean? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, First of all, what is mercy? I think I know what mercy is. And I started looking to define mercy. Mercy, I found, is when we do not get what we do deserve. It doesn't sound like a very good deal at first, does it? I don't get what I do deserve? Now, wait a minute. I want what I deserve. Check that. Hold it. Wait a minute. Didn't we just say we all have a sin situation? We all have spiritual dirt. We all then deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve hell. That's what we deserve, and we've earned it. If you've sinned, you've broken the entire law, you have colored outside of the lines that God gave us, 
and we deserve that eternal separation. But because God is merciful, He sent His Son to pay that penalty to deal with our sin, to make us clean in God's eyes. And because of His mercy, we have an alternative. We don't have to have eternal separation from God. We can have eternal community with God. We call it heaven. And God is merciful to give us that option because what we deserve is hell. And so James says here that as followers of Christ, we need to not just live under mercy, not live in the light of mercy, not be so thankful we have mercy, but we've got to have a right response to God's mercy, which is to show mercy to others. To show mercy to other people because other people are going to sin against you and me. You know that? I don't know, maybe you've never been offended by somebody. Sometimes bad things happen to you and sometimes they happen because other people do them. When that happens, show mercy because you have been given a massive measure of mercy. And if you don't, James says, judgment without mercy will be shown to you who have not been merciful. I don't know about you, but I think I'll show a little more mercy in my life as I read this. Think about my kids. Maybe need to show a lot more mercy in my parenting. I don't know. Verses 14 to 19. Let's continue down this path that James has us on. Verses 14 to 19, he shifts into talking about an often debated, often discussed topic, faith and works or faith and deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you in the church says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but you do nothing to meet their physical needs, what good is that? Ouch. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where people, I've seen people in need, like you pull up to the stoplight and they're there with a little cardboard sign and you can justify in your mind looking away, locking the doors, sitting on your wallet, you know, closing the little um, ashtray full of change, whatever, because they might be alcoholics, they might be going to use the money to do wrong, or they may be millionaires who have made all their money sitting on a street corner begging. And, 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 but we don't know. We put ourselves in a judgment seat when we do that. And, and, and we're not showing mercy, and we're not meeting their needs. And the Bible here, James says, that's not good. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, when not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without action is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith, James says, without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Great. Man, that's good. Good. You believe there's one God. Even the demons. Believe that. And they shudder. They quiver when they think about it. Huh. I don't know about y'all. Maybe he's not in your kitchen. Maybe he's not all up in your grill. James is all up in my grill here. Because I can look at my own life and say there are times when I think, you know, my faith is all I need. My faith does not have to be accompanied by me getting dirty. I don't have to get down in the ditch, muddy and bloody with other people. I don't have to deal with the funk and the junk, as Jim said earlier, the sin in their life. I don't need to deal with their adultery. I don't need to deal with their alcoholism. I don't need to deal with whatever sin they're stained by. I can just leave them in the ditch because I'm saved by by God. I, I have faith. James says, check your faith 
if you aren't down in the ditch, muddy and bloody and dirty in the lives of other people. Because that faith that is saving you should also be compelling you to get dirty, to do the hard things, to live as Jesus lived, to do as Jesus did, to go do likewise. Even the demons, he says, believe. Belief is not in and of itself enough. Because I think we can all agree that the demons, in spite of their belief, do not have access to God's mercy. The demons no longer have access to God's mercy. They made their choice. And the fact that they believe does nothing to save them. Belief is not enough. We've got to be more than hearers, more than believers. We need to be doers. Verses 20 to 24. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Think about that story about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, the father of our Christian faith, going all the way back to the father of Judaism. I mean, Abraham, icon of the Bible. Talk about faith-filled. God called him to take his son up onto the mountain to build an altar and to sacrifice his son the way they would have sacrificed an animal, a blood sacrifice. It required death. And Abraham did it. He, he took his son Isaac. Come on, boy. <laughs> We're going hiking. Right? And Isaac doesn't know what's going on. He figures they're headed up to build an altar and do a sacrifice. He's right. He just doesn't know who the sacrifice is yet. They get up on the mountain. They build the altar. They do. They're ready. Isaac, hey, Dad, where's the, where's the animal? Well, son... <laughs> Here's how it's going to work. And Abraham ties up Isaac and he lifts the knife and right before he strikes, God stops him because he saw that Abraham had faith. He had faith enough to do the impossible, the unthinkable, the unexplainable. He had faith. He was ready to do the work. His faith was being fleshed out. And God did a miraculous thing and called off the sacrifice. Thank God for that. And I don't know about you. God's never called me to commit murder, to sacrifice one of my children. I pray He never does. If He does, I pray I have faith enough to go all the way to the point where it looks like I'm going to do it, but I'm not, right? I don't know if we can fool God, but if we can, that would be ideal for me in that case. But I'm just saying, I don't know what act of faith God is calling you to today but I know He's calling each and every one of us to go and do likewise, to live faith-filled, action-backed lives. Not action-packed, action-backed. we got to back our faith with our works. we got to do something. When God called Trina and I to plant Elevation Church, I didn't think I had enough faith to do what God wanted us to do. I had to leave a career 
at another church where I had been for nine, we'd been members for 14 years. I'd been on staff for nine. I had friends. I had a good income. We had benefits. I had three weeks of vacation. I mean, come on, God, you mean to walk away from that? One of the biggest churches in North America. And yet I couldn't help it. God filled me so full of this desire. We just stepped out in faith to go and do what God called us to go and do. We didn't even know where we were going to go and do it. I resigned thinking we were going to Colorado. Two years later, we planted Elevation Church in our living room in Flower Mound. Who knew? What faith step is God calling you to today? I don't know, but you do. You have that sense of that still small voice in your heart. And He is speaking. That is the Holy Spirit. And He is speaking to you and He's calling you to act on faith. To do something. Maybe for some of you, it's simply stepping out in faith and believing that Jesus is who He says He is, God's only Son. That He does what He says He'll do, cleanse you of your spiritual dirt, your sin. And to faithfully follow Him. Just to enter into that relationship. First step, little baby step of faith to start a relationship with Jesus. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and that's the faith step God has been putting on your heart. Maybe for weeks, maybe for months, maybe for years, maybe for the first time this morning. Do something with that. Maybe you're sitting here this morning with an addiction. I deal with addiction a lot. I see a lot of addiction in our world today. I'm a former addict. I know what it looks like. I know what it smells like, what it sounds like. I know how it fleshes out. I know how addiction works. And I see addiction in this church. There's alcoholics. There's people probably in here that use drugs. They don't think I know. Maybe I don't. Maybe I do. God does. You've got a faith step to take. There's somebody in here who's probably thinking about or in the act of adultery right now in this moment. Faith step. Walk away. Turn from those addictions, from those temptations. You've been given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you to empower you if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not, then you have it available by becoming a follower of Jesus, by taking that faith step. What faith step has God called you to? Maybe some of you are sitting out there today and you know God has called you to vocational ministry and you are too busy with your career or your family or too afraid of, of what that might look like. I don't know. God's called all of us to different faith steps and many faith steps throughout our lives. Don't know where you are today. I believe you do. I believe God is making it clear to you right now. He's pressing in on you and putting this thing on your heart. I challenge you this morning, step out in faith. Faith is just believing in that thing that you can't prove, cannot quite wrap your hands around, can't see it concretely. You believe it, but you don't do anything with it until it's faith. And when it becomes faith, then you do something. Before that, it's belief, and belief is not enough. Belief with action is faith. You've got a faith step to make, some of you, this very morning. Maybe it's faith with serving others or faith in your finances. I don't know, but you do. Some of you are listening to this and you think, maybe I'm too far away from God for faith to do anything for me. Maybe I'm too far. I'm too dirty, too caked in mud and blood. My sin is too great. God's mercy is too far away. It would not be available to me. If that's you, check out what James writes next. We're going to look at verses, verses 25 and 26. In the same way, 
was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Rahab the prostitute gave shelter to God's people. She provided them a place to hide and then sent them off in a different direction from the people who were looking for them. They were out to get them, by the way. I mean, they were like, yeah, we're going to kill these guys. She protected them. Her belief transitioned to faith. She put her own life on the line. Talk about faith. To protect those guys, those spies, from those who are after them. A prostitute. You think you're too far away from God for His mercy to reach you? Here's a woman whose career was to violate the Scriptures. She violated God's design for sex, and she violated every sanctity of marriage, every, every bit of the sanctity of marriage, because you know she destroyed marriages as a prostitute. So far away from God, she had to wonder if, if the mercy was even within reach. And yet she put that belief in God into action. She took a faith step and she protected them. And the Bible says, James says, she was considered righteous because of that. That's pretty extreme. So I don't know how far away you are, but if you're not a prostitute, you're probably um, still within range. If you are a prostitute, you're still within range. And I'll tell you this, I've been farther down the road, I think, than, than maybe a prostitute in some of my past. I said a minute ago, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an addict myself. Years sober, many years sober now. But uh, there was a time where I made my living doing some pretty dark things. Selling some, uh, let's just call it an illegal curbside pharmaceutical distribution business. How's that? I was a drug dealer. I'm not proud of that. I was 18 years ago. And I thought I was too far away for God to reach me. And what I have found, ladies and gentlemen, is that you are never too far away to take a faith step. You take one tiny little faith step towards God, He will take a quantum leap to meet you there, right where you are, filthy, muddy, bloody, dirty in your sin. He sent His Son Jesus as if you were the only one who would ever need to be cleansed. And the work is done. All you've got to do is take a little faith step to believe He is who He says He is, does what He says He'll do, and then the faith step for you is to ask for Jesus to come and do His work, His cleansing work, to clean house in your heart. And boom, the work is done. You're never too far away for God. Never. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We're rounding the corner, headed for home here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is a book, a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. And James and Paul, at first glance, might seem to disagree, but I'll tell you, I think we're going to find that they agree in this whole thing about, about works and about faith and, and how we're saved. So um, let's look at verses 8 and 9, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So no one can boast. There's nothing you or I can do to earn God's mercy. There's nothing that we can do that puts us in God's good 
graces. And by the way, this word grace is a counterpart to that word mercy. If mercy, as we learned earlier, is not getting what we do deserve, if it's not getting hell when hell is what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. In this case, heaven. See, we don't deserve it, but because of God's mercy and grace working in conjunction with one another, we have access to it. And the only access that we have, Paul says, and James corroborates, the only access that we have is when our belief becomes faith as we express it and as we live it out. We're saved by grace, God's grace, which we can't earn, don't deserve, through our faith, which is our belief fleshed out. Saved by grace through faith. When we receive this grace, when we receive this mercy, when we bring those things into our hearts or when God brings those things into our hearts by the person of His Son, Jesus, then we're to go and do likewise. To go and do likewise to share God's grace and God's mercy, to go share the story of Jesus Christ, the good news, the gospel, with as many people as we can, unashamed, unembarrassed, unencumbered by cultural barriers. I love talking to Gavin. Gavin works in a very secular office. Gavin has a, a boss who one day told him, you do that and I will make you a god. And Gavin laughed out loud. Not to make a point of Gavin here, but just to make a point. He's like, you have that kind of power? And the guy understood his point. He kind of you know, backed off. And, but that's what we're called to do. We're called to go and live boldly for Jesus. To go and share our faith by the way that we act, what we do, how we speak, the way that we love others. Sometimes the way that we stand up to the enemies of the faith. Lovingly, but boldly. We're supposed to go and do likewise to share the good news of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. And we should share the grace and the mercy that has been poured out over us with other people when they offend us, when they sin against us, when they do us wrong. We need to be the most gracious, most merciful people on earth, the Christian church. If you wear that name, the name of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, a lover of God, whatever tag you want to put on it, you should be the most merciful, most gracious person that you know. Because Jesus has given you grace and mercy in abundance. And He has not only blessed you with as a recipient of it, like you get, you're covered by it, but He's filled you with it. Let it out. Let it flow. And go do likewise. Go live the way Jesus lived. Go be the church. And ladies and gentlemen, Elevation Church was founded on these principles. They all echo back to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. The Great Commission, go and make disciples. The Great Commandment, love the Lord your God and love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others, make followers of Jesus. That is what the church is supposed to do. That's what, as individuals, Christians are supposed to do. We founded this church on those Scripture verses, on those life principles. Loving God, loving other people, and leading them to a life with Christ. Our mission statement at the church is, we exist to lead people 
so that they may know Jesus personally, that they may grow in faith through relationships, and they will go and share the love of Jesus with others. And that's exactly what Elevation Church has been doing and what we continue to do. And we continue with this next weekend. We have a great opportunity next Saturday to go share the love of Christ with others in our community. We're headed up to Denton to participate in a phenomenal ministry called Breaking Bread to share the love of Christ by feeding some hungry, homeless, needy people. People who cannot do for themselves what we are able to do as a church and as a group of churches and community organizations coming together. Uh, They call it Breaking Bread. I think it's a cool name. And we're going to go break bread with these people. Elevation Church, what we have done in the past with this group, we're table waiters, literally. We set up this room, and it's changed a little bit, so I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work this time. But in the past, we set up a room, and we went and we sat these homeless people these hungry people, these hurting people together at like an eight top and we put a plant in there like a a person to facilitate communication and conversation and to share the love of Christ with them. And then we went by as table waiters and we took their order off of a menu that they were given. And then we go back to the kitchen, we fill the order, we come back and we deliver and call them by name and we love on them. Serve them a hot meal, a nutritious meal. And we just share the love of Christ by what we do with our actions and also with our words. The following Saturday, we have another opportunity. It's like a double dip opportunity here. We're going to serve with the town of Flower Mound at their event called Kidfish. Kidfish is phenomenal too. Half of our church did that last year. Last May, wasn't it? Same, same weekend, I think, last May. We went out there and just set up our tent. We have a little game called Ladder Golf. We let the kids play. We give them candy. They love us. It's amazing. We love on parents. We share with them the, the vision of the church. But most importantly, with, with our community, we just share the love of Christ. We just share the love of Christ. We're just out there to meet needs, to love on people, to shake hands, to smile, to have a conversation about Jesus if that's what they want, or to have a conversation about fishing if that's what they want. We'll meet them where they are and just love them where they are. Two really great events for you to flesh out your faith, to go and do likewise, to live the life Jesus called you to live. 